I'm now joined by Nick Smallwood, Chief Executive of the Infrastructure and Projects Authority. Nick, you kindly um, kicked off our conference um, with our keynote, your conversation with our new chair, Emma Howard Boyd, and you reflected on uh, being the archetypal insider through your decades of work at Shell and then your role as an outsider when you came into the Infrastructure and Projects Authority. And that really set us up well in terms of the, the value of continuous improvement from within and the getting the basics right, and also the, the value of bringing in fresh perspectives and new voices to kick on and, and change the paradigms uh, um, of how we deliver uh, major projects. But before we go into any, any uh, detail, I thought I'll just ask you first up, um, what were your reflections? What were your key takeaways from the conference? So I guess my, my overarching reflection was the unanimous agreement that we had echo chambers and, and we had a lot of groupthink that you've got to break out of. And we don't have enough of a conversation around being deeply curious about those people who are perhaps doing things differently and successfully. You know, I was particularly struck when we heard uh, the conversation around NASA's journey and the number of failures that they had versus SpaceX going into a new market knocking the doors off with a young population of engineers and project professionals who didn't have any hesitation about you know following history they were just going to do what they needed to do to be successful it really struck me that you know there's power and energy that you can bring to successfully deliver a project rather than actually doing what you've always done and i think that that really stands out that we have got a really changing world and to quote um, the famous philosophers, you know, if you continue to do what you've always done, you're going to get the same result. So uh, I think we need to change. Yeah, and the irony of um, that that example we had from NASA and SpaceX is that NASA brought ideas from outside and different domains and uh, and and uh, fresh perspectives when they started off, and it was only through their sort of continuous improvement and creating more and more order. In, in their work that they became well they created their echo chamber which then lasted them you know many decades and yeah. comparing what we found out you know the the average age of spacex matched very closely to the average age of nasa when they were both first formed so uh, uh it was a, an, an interesting uh, reflection that we got there when we bring in uh, new ways of working we learned from um harvey mailer uh, when he gave us a definition of an echo chamber and and how they work one of the defense mechanisms of an echo chamber is to discredit outsiders and so how is it that you know how how do we as uh, you know um, influencers and, and and leaders in uh, in in the world of major projects ensure that when we look outside of our bubbles um that we then don't immediately just say that will never work around here you know that that won't work in our environment or our project or our department or agency is so unique it, it won't work so how do we get over that defensive mechanism that we heard about? So I think there's there's two really important um, communities that play a part in that, Andy. One is the governance body. They've got to be up for the challenge of perhaps doing things differently, being challenged themselves and being very clear on what it is they want to achieve. So they've got to set the, the environment, if you will, for um, taking the right uh, amount of risk versus reward. And then it comes down to project to program leadership at the end of the day. You know, I've seen a very, very big difference between those program and project directors who have the ambition to be the best. And therefore, they look outside their norm and they look at who is the best and they make they make that leap from being very, very good 
to being the best. And, and there's, a, there's a fantastic curve I've seen drawn by academics which show the worse performing you are, the most likely you are to learn from others because you cannot carry on and doing what you do. The better you get, the less receptive you are to looking outside because you're doing quite well and you don't want to be disrupted. The very best jump from the bottom of that curve to being the most curious about what good looks like, who's doing it even better than them, how do they stay ahead of the pack? And it doesn't matter whether you're an elite athlete or you're a Formula One team. When you look at those at the front of the, the pack, they are going that extra mile to learn, to do things differently. And it's the, you know, the 0.01% that makes a difference. And I think in the project world, it's it's not dissimilar. You've got to have an eye on why are others failing, what's causing them to fail, and and make that extra step. And we're guilty, I think, in many cases of having, I think, loose language about lessons learned. And mm -hmm. I certainly had the experience in my career where people would um, almost describe a lesson learned that for me is a basic. I don't need to be told that you've got to do the foundation work really well. I'm sorry, every project needs to do the foundation work every well. That is not a lesson learned. That's a prerequisite. You have to do it. Now, how can you actually take 25% of the cost out of your piling activities in a big construction site? I'm curious to know how you might do that. So it's mm -hmm. it's really having that energy and appetite at the leadership level because you set the tone. And if you see what Elon Musk has done with, with SpaceX or even Tesla, you know, no challenge is too difficult. Go for it, solve it, find a way, because we'll get to the end. Now, you can't you can't fail fast on building a railway. It's got to be safe and you've got to do everything that's right. But boy, wouldn't it be great if you had a whole community of project and programme directors working on UK rail systems who wanted to deliver it better than the Japanese, the French, the Germans and the Italians and actually knew what elements of their delivery was world class and what we could do that would be even better. And I started that dialogue in, in the IPA, actually, and talking about nothing less than world class delivery. And actually, mm. it's amazing how many people actually don't know what that means. And it's deliberately vague, isn't it? Because actually it will mean different things to different people. I, I put it on the table to to start the curiosity about, well, what do you mean? What, where, where do I go and look? It, it doesn't automatically light fires under people. You've actually got to bring it to life. And the way we brought it to life in my private sector uh, career was we actually insisted that everyone benchmark their project. And actually it went from resistance you know you're bringing someone from the outside to look at my project and tell me how good or bad it isn't to actually almost a bit of internal competition that people wanted to be the best they wanted to go the extra mile and demonstrate they'd done the best possible front-end loading and actually there's a statistical significant uh, uh, relationship between being best practical front-end loading and better outcomes so they were almost giving more assurance to what they were doing but also there was a real focus on how do they take unnecessary cost out? How can they actually do a better job in the field? How do they become more productive? And it it almost snowballed from you've got to do benchmarking and show me where you are to actually I'm going to embrace this. And that's where I learned how helpful benchmarking was in my career. I joined uh, what was at the time Shell Chemicals and they'd been top quintile on cost in the industry for seven consecutive years. And I came as an outsider to this community and they were a normal group of, of human beings doing projects, but boy, they just did a fantastic job. They were safe, they were on time, they were the lowest cost in the industry. And, and I was really curious about, well, how are you doing it? And they just deeply understood what good looked like. And they kept ahead of their competition. And they turned this 
uh, resistance to looking outside to being a healthy prerequisite to becoming the best. So I think the governance uh, organisations have a moral obligation to think about what role they're playing to foster that environment. And I think project and programme directors need to play their part, quite frankly. And you can either be very negative and, and you know, you carry on doing it the old fashioned way, or, or you've got to recognise that we've got challenges like Next Zero, we've got challenges like uh, levelling up, we've got digitalisation coming. I see them as opportunities, not challenges. They're fantastic opportunities to um, deliver better outcomes. Yeah, and it's uh, prompting us that we, we must rethink, we need to rethink about how we go about uh, delivering uh, our projects to support those uh, those challenges. It's interesting you mentioned benchmarking. Um, I, in, in a previous role, I uh, did some uh, work with uh, the core cities um, in their sort of project program management uh, capability, and they all benchmarked themselves. It's the first time they they had done that, and I'm not going to name them because um, don't embarrass them, but one of the core cities was significantly worse than than the rest so they, they came you know eighth out of eighth you know in, in, in every measure uh, and rather than use that as a you know woe is me uh, um you know uh, scenario the the head of projects who was relatively new uh, into that organization just went round each of the others and found out what the other seven did that was best in the benchmark and just copied it um and within a year when we went back it was actually about 18 months went back to do a second benchmark and the eighth went to first in in yeah. one go and yes. and they hadn't spent a lot of effort designing and understanding no. they just went and copied the best of each of the others um yeah. and that was a a great way of just showing the value of benchmarking in a in a community where they where they will share and and, and you know show and share with each other What's really interesting in terms of the theme of our echo chamber, though, is that um, what that local authority, that metropolitan uh, city council didn't do was look outside of their peer network. And so that's something we also need to do as well, which is uh, how, how do we Indeed. learn from Indeed. other domains? And uh, you may be aware in terms of, uh, and I know that the IPA is doing a lot of work around data and digital, but I've been curious for some time about how the world of projects can learn from the world of football. In, in data analytics and how the likes of Moneyball and baseball beforehand, how data analytics is transforming the way that the game is is being played. Um, and I'm sure there's lots of ways that we could do that. You mentioned the the rail systems, and I'm sure there's perhaps, you know, whether it's um, the, the trading floors in financial services or banking, we, we could look at those in terms of how, you know, projects are, are delivered there. Um, also, that in terms of, you know, in that environment then, Nick, do we, do we overcome that discredit? Uh, um, is it just getting externals in to, to do that benchmarking, or you know, is it something we can do to help our project leaders to to be more receptive, as you say, to be those very best where they just say we do need to look outside of our our direct environment? I, I think it it it's down to human behaviour to a certain extent. You know, you've got to have the will and energy to go look, but. I think the more that people look outside their own environment, the more they'll realise that they're not alone and there's help, there's opportunity. And, you know, in the oil and gas world, I used to look at the automotive and aeronautical industry for, for inspiration. And you saw fantastic uh, analogies with your, your world and things that you could steal with pride and use that helps your job. So why wouldn't you want to do it? And if you can just get a few people to, to do that, go look and go see, uh, steal with pride, you build a, almost a momentum that it becomes the way you do business. 
So I think it's it's um, first movers have got to do it. You've got to get that culture moving mm. in any organisation. You've got to want to do it. Otherwise, it really becomes a, a push. And then, you know, the outsider insider issues start to bubble up. But I think as we as we look at the technology revolution uh, rolling out ahead of us, your, your analogy to the football world, we haven't even started in the UK infrastructure industry, have we? If you think about what's possible already in measuring, you know, mm. how many yards a football has run and what their likely uh, calorie take has been and whether they really need to come off and, and be replaced, it's time. Um, You've got the same technologies available in, 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 in the modern construction world, whether it be for uh, utilisation of plant, whether it be for uh, effective you know, work at the, at the work face and have they got the right materials, have they got the right access. All that is enabled by technology, readily available, proven. It's out there today, but people aren't using it. We're, we're typically doing things the way we've always done. And so... That's why in, in the IPA, we published the Transforming Infrastructure Performance Roadmap to 2030, not only to address the fact that we need to focus on the built environment to, to the natural environment, but also to reflect that we've got to move in the digitalization world. We've got to actually embrace it and realize what value it can bring to projects. And you know, I had an experience back in, I can't remember whether it was 2016, 2017, of using advanced work packaging. And we used it on a project where um, my company were going to be the construction management organisation. So we didn't have an engineering procurement construction contractor between us and the field contractors. And mm -hmm. we used advanced work packaging and a competitor of ours, not 40 miles down the road. So the same ecosystem of employment, we were installing pipe at twice the rate of that, of that other site. And the people were not working harder, they were just working smarter. We just made sure that we had the right access, the right materials. We were sending the craft to work in the right order and they orderly went and did their work really well every day. So, you know, when, when I see that technology available and people don't use it, you then have to say, well, what are the blockers? And sometimes the blockers are not um, directly people, there are contract arrangements and we've we've almost, had, had a sleepwalking into we've always done it this way therefore we've built a barrier to people not using technology that's available and that's why i'm going to be insisting increasingly that we actually get a digitalization plan for all our major projects that people commit in writing of what they're going to do i want them to go away and research what's possible then come and tell me how are you going to do it on this project and i truly believe there's a revolution about to happen in in, in our industry uh and, and a revolution for good that will actually move us in terms of opportunity to employ more disabled people because you can use automated tools and they don't have to leave their their home. Uh, we can bring more females into a what, what's ostensibly a male dominated uh, and conceivably thought of as a dirty industry and it isn't it's going to be it's going to be moving to a high tech um, mm -hmm. high tech world and you know visualization and I'm starting to see it the good news is there really are some green shoots out there uh, and I think it's going to proliferate quite quickly. Um, there's movement in the private sector, which is great to see. I want to see even more in the public sector, which is really going to help us get not only the cost of delivering public services and new, new infrastructure, but also the time it takes to, to, to build these big assets. So hospitals, prisons, schools, road and rail infrastructure, if we can deliver it faster and cheaper and of higher quality, uh, I would have thought that's a great prize that we should be uh, should be aiming for. 
Yeah, and it's interesting to see in uh, in the TIP 2030 roadmap as well that there are, you know, the things like modern methods of construction. Yeah. And the origins of that is looking outside of construction yeah. to the yeah. likes of manufacturing and logistics to say, well, what are the things there that optimise those sectors or those uh, um, disciplines and how can we apply that in, in a construction context? And it's uh, and it is that curiosity that you mentioned right at the beginning. That's all it takes uh, to do that, indeed. Um, indeed. And yeah, I, think, I, I came um, across. So I was going to say, if you if you take the example of modern methods of construction, uh, which gets all sorts of positive and negative press depending on who you hear from, um, if it's done right, it can vary from complete sub assemblies delivered to a construction site, almost complete, tested, cabled, uh, and power cables all ready to go, to uh, fairly modest components that you can take but anything that's done away from a construction site actually helps with the net zero challenge you know if you can do it more effectively more efficiently with less energy and less people traveling to a construction site the carbon footprint goes down so it's not a case of it's more expensive it's actually better for the planet and i think that increasingly is going to be a lens that people will want to have not just the economic value but the social value that goes with it yeah and, and there's sort of the the, the hybrid I guess models are, are, you know linked to that, like the Colne Valley um, on HS2, where they've got yep. their effectively their on-site factory, um, uh, and and that's that's an equivalent, but it's then you know saving all of the all of the movement of all that material uh, around and and doing the the manufacturing on-site, and then it'll be repurposed when the you know yep. when the project's complete. Um, so yep. yeah, it's great to see that that, that thinking outside the box. Um, or, or, or you know, approaching projects differently uh, so is really useful. Any other thoughts or uh, top tips you would like to offer in terms of how we can uh, um, escape the major projects echo chamber? So I think it's the challenge I'd put out there to our project uh, leaders, quite frankly, Andy. I think if we can be deeply curious, uh, I think there's a huge opportunity to, to make a step change in what we deliver. And I think the more curious the leader is, the more likely your team are going to follow you and, and, and follow your lead. And therefore, you know, you create a, a whole community of curiosity that can make a difference in an industry that, quite frankly, looks exactly the same today as it did when I started my career mm -hmm. 40 years ago. So there's a huge opportunity out there to bring new thoughts, new ways of working and better outcomes. And um, I'm really looking forward to seeing more of those green shoots start to appear in the next 12 months. Great. And that's a brilliant way for us to finish this podcast and our reflections on our uh, annual conference on uh, the escaping the major projects echo chamber. So thank you very much, Nick.